So if you follow Steministas on Twitter, you've already heard that Rachel and I are planning to talk about science in movies. That's right. For your benefit, Emma and I selflessly spent two hours this week watching Jurassic Park. Thanks to everyone who voted and helped us pick out this first movie. And the next movie that we watch will be X-Men. talk about the science of Jurassic Park, we just wanted to give a brief recap of the movie. So wealthy entrepreneur John Hammond sets out to make his wildest dreams come true. He wants to have an amusement park featuring real-life dinosaurs. So we'll go into the details of how he accomplishes this later, but as the opening of the park draws nearer, the investors start to get a little nervous about the feasibility and safety of this park. So begrudgingly, Hammond brings in a team of experts to perform a safety inspection. He brings in paleontologist Alan Grant, paleobotanist Ellie Sattler, and mathematician Ian Malcolm. While they are initially amazed by this massive scientific achievement, it quickly becomes apparent that Hammond has not exactly taken every precaution that he should have. For example, they selected poisonous plants to place in the main building because they looked pretty, and they also chose to breed very dangerous species— namely the velociraptors, or are they really velociraptors, as we'll get into later in the podcast. But these small mistakes turn into a huge problem when a rogue employee tries to steal Hammond's research and shuts off power from the park during a massive storm. As you can imagine, chaos ensues and Hammond gets an F on his safety inspection. Yeah, Emma and I both found the scenes about the safety inspection to be pretty amusing. I mean, it's clear that Hammond thinks these inspections are a waste of time and that they're going to slow everything down. But in reality, I mean, we have lab safety checks all the time um, and safety checks are annoying and they, you know, they do take up time, but they're important to make sure that the lab is safe and that no one's going to be harmed. With the various clinical trials going on with COVID-19, we are seeing some people desire to push through clinical trials as fast as possible. While most scientists are saying that these trials should not be rushed because of the safety issues. Yeah, if you think about it, uh, clinical trials are basically safety inspections of the drug or vaccine that's being tested. So cutting corners can lead to lives lost and money being poured down the drain. And in the case of Jurassic Park, we see how disdain for lab safety comes back to bite Hammond, literally. Rachel, did you have any favorite parts of the movie? Yeah, my my favorite scene is definitely where the T-Rex attacks the group when they're sitting in the Jeeps in front of the T-Rex housing place. And through my research for this episode, I actually learned that one of the most terrifying parts of this scene where the T-Rex breaks the safety glass on top of the Jeep, um, it was actually not planned. And there was a malfunction. Yeah. I know there was a malfunction with the robot, the T-Rex robot, and I guess because it w- it was raining in that scene, the water had gotten into the robot and they couldn't like totally control its movement, so it jerked too far and broke the glass. So all that that acting that you see is those those are real screams. <laughs> oh my goodness, that would be terrifying. Any favorite parts for you? I enjoyed just seeing what they thought of science in 1993. I think that was pretty fascinating and just some of the some of the futuristic things they thought we would have in science, which we'll get into. But I also, uh, back in, I think it was 2016, I actually got to go to Hawaii. And on 
the big island you can go and actually tour the valley where they filmed jurassic park and it's this valley where they filmed basically any hawaiian movie like you'll notice if you've seen movies filmed in hawaii they all have this like one ridge as part of it so it's cool to get to see just the beauty of hawaii in this movie Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the island is gorgeous in all the scenes. That must have been really cool to see in real life. I, I've always wanted to go out to, um, where is it, New Zealand, where they filmed The Hobbit. Oh, my goodness. Me too. Yeah. Or, no, Lord of the Rings. Both of them? I'm not sure. I know they definitely <laughs> filmed Lord of the Rings there. But yeah, they probably yeah. filmed, I think they did Hobbit also. Yeah. That's definitely on my list once we can travel places again. <laughs> One day in the future. So getting back to Jurassic Park, let's talk about how they brought back the dinosaurs, the accuracy of the science, and how they get dinosaur DNA. In the film, they explain that back in the day, mosquitoes would feed on dinosaurs, filling their abdomens with dinosaur blood. Now sometimes these mosquitoes would stop to rest on a tree and get stuck in tree sap. Over millions of years, this tree sap hardened into amber, preserving the mosquito and the dinosaur DNA. The scientists at Jurassic Park would simply drill into the amber to get the blood and use it to extract the DNA. Interestingly, this concept of ancient DNA being preserved in amber is based on the work by paleobiologist George Poinar. In 1982, Poinar and his wife, electron microscopist Roberta Hess, published a study showing that intracellular structures, including mitochondria and nuclei, could be preserved in amber. Michael Creighton credits this paper as the inspiration for his idea about how they would be able to find dinosaur DNA. And Michael Creighton is the guy who wrote the original Jurassic Park book. This must have been so exciting for Roberta and George to see their work become part of a best-selling science fiction book. It's also fascinating to see not only how science inspired the story of Jurassic Park, but also how the story drove the experiments. George Poinar and his son had been discussing the idea of trying to extract DNA from organisms trapped in amber. After hearing about Michael Creighton's idea, they initiated a project to extract ancient DNA from weevils, which are kind of like bug. This is something that had been done before, but never for a sample as old as the dinosaurs described in Jurassic Park. Poinar's team was successful and published their results in Nature one day before the film's debut. I was born in 1993, actually, when this film came out. It was crazy to read about the context of this and to realize what, what a big impact this film made. Unfortunately, um, this logic of getting dino DNA doesn't completely hold up. For starters, there's the possibility that the dinosaur DNA could get mixed with the mosquito DNA during the extraction. But even if they were able to separate the two, the DNA would have degraded over its 100 million year wait leaving only short fragments. George Poinar himself pointed out that in this hypothetical scenario, short dinosaur DNA fragments could, of course, still be interesting to align and compare to other genomes, but they would not be sufficient for cloning. But is this really such a crazy idea? I mean, George Church has stated that he's trying to resurrect the woolly mammoth through cloning using DNA extracted from bones. Yeah, timing is the thing that makes a big difference here. So the woolly mammoth went extinct during the Holocene era. That's the current era that we're living in now. Whereas most of the dinosaurs depicted in Jurassic Park existed during the Cretaceous period. Ironically, not the Jurassic period, but I guess that sounds better for a book title. Um, while the Holocene era is from 12,000 years ago to present day, 
the Cretaceous period lasted from 135 to 66 million years ago. This is quite a big difference. In the movie, once they had the DNA, they used this blueprint to recreate the dinosaurs using a process called reproductive cloning, which is often abbreviated to cloning. Cloning is a technique that's used to make a genetically identical copy of some organism. You may be familiar with the concept of cloning if you've ever heard about Dolly the sheep. This was the first animal to be successfully cloned in 1996. In order to clone an organism, you need the genome from the original organism you're trying to duplicate and a donor egg from that species. Scientists can gently remove the nucleus from the donor egg and replace it with the DNA from the organism you're trying to duplicate. They then activate this egg to begin forming an embryo. So we know that in order to perform cloning, a full genome is required. When we look at a genome in the genome browser, we can't figure out our sequence if there are gaps in the genetic code. And in the movie, they try to address this lack of a full genome by explaining that after 100 million years, of course the DNA was not completely intact, but that's okay, because our geneticists will fill the blanks with frog DNA. Ta-da! <laughs> and while we can, and certainly do, glue together small pieces of DNA from different species in the lab, Doing this with large parts of chromosomes to reconstruct a genome is likely not possible, especially with such evolutionarily divergent species. This is because of the fact that over time, DNA, chromosome number, and organization have changed. For example, take my favorite gene, GFAP, which, if you remember back to our first few episodes, is the gene that's mutated in Alexander disease, which is the focus of my dissertation research. In humans... GFAP is located on chromosome 17. In mice, however, it's located on chromosome 11. Now, we know that humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes and mice have only 20, so perhaps the numbering just got offset a little bit. And it is true that when you look at the genome browser and, and try to see what other genes are surrounding GFAP in mice and humans, that the, the genes are similar, so not too much has changed in that specific area. However, if we go back further than mice, some species like fruit flies and worms don't even have the GFAP gene. Perhaps a more drastic example is the Hawks genes. This is a family of genes that are transcription factors, meaning that they are responsible for turning on different sets of genes at different times. In the case of the Hawks transcription factors, they control genes that determine the layout of the body plan, or where certain body parts should be and how many there need to be. For example, certain Hawks genes ensure that you only have two sets of arms instead of four, and that these two arms rest at the top of your torso instead of at the top of your head. Fruit flies have eight Hawks genes. However, in mammals, the set has been duplicated multiple times, so there are four different clusters of Hawks genes. Beyond that, there are additional Hawks genes in the, within these sets that aren't present in the original fruit fly set. So you can imagine the chaos that would happen if you were missing a DNA in the region where the Hawks genes are in humans and you tried to paste the fruit fly DNA into this area. The basic body plan would make no sense. Now, obviously, humans and fruit flies are pretty different, but so are frogs and dinosaurs, and I expect you would run into some similar issues. Not to mention, we now know that beyond genes, non-coding parts of the genome can also play important functions. So without having an intact genome, it would be kind of like trying to put something back together Humpty Dumpty style, using a completely different egg. 
Side note, one thing we need to clarify for sure is that there isn't virtual reality for genetics. In the movie, they depict a scientist wearing these virtual reality goggles and visualizing the DNA and seeing where the gaps are. They could see where those gaps were and then would know where to fill in the gaps. I kind of threw my hands up in the air at this part because of how incorrect it was. Granted, it would be really cool if we could see DNA in virtual reality. Yeah, and I'm sure, but like back in 93, VR technology is, you know, people have VR technology, can build that at their home pretty easily now, but but back then it was probably something that's very flashy. Uh, I I mean, but honestly, though, even if we could visualize DNA in this way, um, which I'm sure people can figure it out if they want to, the the sheer number of nucleotides um, present in a genome is just way beyond our comprehension and most scientists rely on computer programs to analyze long stretches of sequences to help us find patterns and differences our body on the other hand has the amazing ability to repair and fill in dna gaps all on its own however this can only be done if there is a template of dna we know that dna is double-stranded and the bases of dna match up in a certain way so if one strand becomes mutated Different proteins can spot that mutation and then fix the DNA based off of the other strand because there is a code to the DNA sequence. However, if a chunk of DNA is missing, the body can't manufacture that without a template. So the best thing it can do in this situation is to smash the two strands together, which could lead to loss of important information. Getting back to needing the full sequence of the dinosaur genome to put DNA together, if you don't have the full sequence, then you don't know how to fill the gaps in DNA. The movie uses frog DNA to fill in the gaps, however, since they didn't have the whole sequence of the dinosaur that they were looking at, they wouldn't know if they were actually putting the sequence of the frog DNA in at a place where it could be helpful. Or it could potentially disrupt the production of a protein like in the case of the Hox genes, they wouldn't know. Our genetic sequence is read like how we read a book. If a sentence is disrupted by a bunch of random words, the sentence makes no sense. This is similar to DNA where it is read in a certain order, so a disruption of that order by random sequences could affect the protein being produced or lead to it not being produced at all. Another thing to point out here is that we often talk about DNA like a 2D book. However, the nucleus is actually a 3D structure, so sometimes parts of the genome that aren't like right next to each other as you're reading the sequence or aren't even next to each other on the same part of the chromosome can actually interact in space. So by putting random pieces of DNA to fix the holes, you have no idea what you're doing to these 3D interactions and and what interactions you could be either disrupting or creating. But if they had to find a way to fill in the holes, why would they use frog DNA to fill in these gaps, you say? Well, plot-wise, it ends up making for a really interesting twist. The Jurassic Park scientists have been careful to only generate female dinosaurs, and this was so that they could avoid any uncontrolled breeding in the park. However, frogs can actually change sex, so in the movie, it turns out that the dinosaurs actually have been breeding. The ability of frogs to change sexes isn't just made up for this movie. Actual researchers have found frogs in the wild with two X chromosomes that present as male, and also frogs that have an X and a Y chromosome but present as female. They're not sure exactly what causes this, but it could be temperature, chemicals, or a combination of the two. 
Fun fact, this is actually foreshadowed very early on in the film. When the team is arriving to the island by helicopter, Dr. Grant is having trouble buckling his seatbelt because he is holding the two female ends. Frustrated, he just finally ties them together. And as Ian Malcolm says later on, life finds a way. But back to the science, obviously reconstructing the genome would be complicated enough, but even if they were able to achieve this, they'd have a new problem. How do you take that DNA, fold it into chromosomes, and ideally package it into a dinosaur egg? Michael Crichton himself even admitted in an interview that because the actual biology on how to go from DNA to an embryo was so unclear, his strategy was just kind of to skip that part. (laughs) I mean, it's probably smart because whatever he would come up with would probably not make much scientific sense, especially if scientists don't know. (laughs) While we were watching this movie, we were pretty focused on the genetics because that's both of our backgrounds. But another interesting scientific element of this movie was how the dinosaurs were depicted. Now, we brought this up before, but you have to remember that this movie came out in 1993, and since then, obviously, there's been a lot of research conducted on dinosaurs. It can be easy to poke fun at the movie, um, but in reality, they did a lot of research to make a movie that was pretty accurate with what they knew about dinosaurs. They even consulted expert paleontologist Jack Horner, for which um, the character Alan Grant was based after. One common qualm with this first movie, and actually the following movies, was that what was called a velociraptor was technically not even a velociraptor. Michael Creighton, who wrote the Jurassic Park books, used the term velociraptor, even though the animals he described were the close relation of velociraptors, known as Deinococcus, which means terrible claw in Greek. Interestingly, this era wasn't necessarily Michael Crichton's, but actually Gregory St. Paul's, who wrote the 1988 book Predatory Dinosaurs of the World. In this book, St. Paul argued that Deinonychus and Velociraptor were so similar that they should just be grouped under the same heading of Velociraptor. Michael Crichton acknowledged St. Paul in his book, so we know that he had read St. Paul's book and likely continued St. Paul's error. Paleontologists disagreed with St. Paul's assertion. However, because of the popularity of Jurassic Park, it's still thought that the dinosaurs depicted in this movie is a velociraptor when it's actually a Dionychus. The Dionychus is basically a big version of the velociraptor with large claws and is about the size of the velociraptor shown in the movie. Normal velociraptors are actually hip height and thus nowhere near the size depicted in the movie. When you watch the movie, know that the velociraptor that they're calling a velociraptor is basically a Dionychus. Another interesting thing about how the velociraptor slash Dionychus words depicted in the movie is the lack of feathers. Fossils have been discovered showing that the real velociraptor had feathers on its forelegs. It's not known if the Deinonychus have feathers, but since they are similar to the Velociraptor, it's likely. Even though this discovery was well known before the most recent Jurassic Park, feathers were not added to the Velociraptors. However, in Jurassic World, which was the most recent film, I think, that came out in 2016, the scientists explained why they didn't add feathers by saying that the dinosaurs were genetically modified and didn't have 100% dino DNA. Yeah, I guess frogs don't have feathers. One of the fascinating things about Jurassic Park is the sentiment that using genetics to perform gene editing is is looked at like playing God. 
In the movie, they say that man can destroy God by bringing back extinct animals, even though nature selects them for extinction. Almost 30 years later, today, the practice of using genetics without appropriate caution is still very much alive and well. There's a decent amount of concern about using genetic editing, not in animals and plants as much, but in humans. From the initial outcry against the use of in vitro fertilization in 1978, to He Jiankou's unethical use of CRISPR in 2018 to gene edit two girls to being able to choose embryos for implantation based on their genetics. Many of these situations were looked at as playing God. Malcolm, the character who's played by Jeff Goldblum, makes the point that the lack of humility before nature scares me. And he called out Hammond for, quote, wielding genetic power like a kid who's found his dad's gun. The movie indeed highlights the danger of pride. Hammond counters back, how can we stand in the light of discovery and not act? And this sentiment has been shared by geneticists, excited about the furthering of the genetic frontier. While genetics is fascinating, furthering the frontier doesn't justify throwing ethical implications out of the window. Two weeks ago, the International Commission on the Clinical Use of Human Germline Genome Editing discussed the future of gene editing human embryos. While they laid some good groundwork to the importance of optimizing genetics, the focus on the ethics of even doing such genetic feats was not discussed, even though there were ethicists on this board. Granted, they said it wasn't really part of their scope to discuss the ethics. Even if it wasn't part of the scope, this is slightly concerning since the ethics should be strongly tied to the genetics because the ethics should drive if these modifications could ever happen. However, it's encouraging that representatives from multiple countries and multiple disciplines attended this meeting and agree that editing of human embryos is important to regulate. So while it may not seem like human embryos have much to do with Jurassic Park, in reality, a lot of the sort of sentiments around genetics are shaped by popular culture. And it's just interesting when you look at a movie from 1993, these same sort of trends of looking at, wow, all these things we can do with science, that's being looked at as, well, we have to try these things if we can do it. And that's not necessarily the case and uh, explains why ethics is so important to focus on. As they say in the movie, I think, like spending too much time thinking about whether you could instead of whether you should. Jurassic Park, while not completely correct scientifically, I mean, can any movie be completely correct scientifically? (laughs) But it helped introduce many Americans to genetics and dinosaurs, two things Americans have continued to be interested in almost 30 years later. (laughs) 